marketing a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners and today i'm sitting down with dan ingle ceo of big red communications what i think is fair to say you're a fiercely independent agency based in melbourne with a focus on commercial performance and a deep range of experience with retail clients in particular but others as well so it's great to be here dan uh, welcome thank you um, and David, just before we get started, I just want to reaffirm that this is an audio-only podcast because COVID hasn't been kind either to the waistline or you know other parts. So that's you, true. I think you look delightful, but I'm going to take this. We're going to take this discussion on a whole other tangent, quite frankly. But yeah, we're sitting here in jeans and t-shirt. Um, yeah. Um, so look, uh, let's um, let's kick off. Um, there's all sorts of things I can talk to you about, and I, I do want to focus a bit on retail um, in, in due course because I think it's a really interesting category, and you do have a lot of expertise. But let's talk about the agency landscape um, and where Big Red fits in. You know, what I'm seeing in the market, and you can agree or disagree with this, but I, I, what I'm seeing in the market is increasing whole co-consolidation of agency brands at one end. So, you know, the WPPs of this world sort of collapsing in on themselves a bit and getting rid of some brands and merging others. But then increasing numbers of independent startups at the other. And, you know, Big Red um, is an established, and as I said, I think proudly independent agency um, that kind of sits um, in between those poles. How, how do you see the landscape right now? Absolutely. And I, I think if you... If you want to take a you know business school approach to analysing the dynamics of the advertising industry, and you apply, for example, Michael Porter's five forces model, um, which has recently been you know more or less represented in an IBIS World Report, you know the the amount of new entrants, so the barriers to entry are very low. Obviously, you don't need a huge amount of capital. You know, maybe in this day and age, a computer and and some software to start. Um, uh, but the competitive intensity amongst existing players is immense. And so I agree with you. Any any other day you log on to the industry publications and, you know, there's another agency who's done a relatively high-profile campaign for a very large brand that you've never heard of every day. Yeah. Um, and so that fragmentation, you know, I think is a, a result of, you know, the holding company consolidation, which is absolutely a trend. Um, where, you know, good people um, are leaving those businesses and taking with them relationships because it's still very much a relationship-based business, um, uh, trusted relationships that they then, you know, with very little capital investment can start servicing, you know, very well. And the beauty, as, you know, you're quite right to say, we are proudly and fiercely independent, um, which really helps us in this day and age of, you um, it's, it's a highly complex landscape to navigate when, you know, developing solutions for clients. Um, and, the, the, you know, the brilliance of being independent means that we can customise our partners who we engage with for any given project on any given client, whether that's a one-off project, which is increasingly the case. So it is moving much more away from retainer-based relationships to project-based. Um, and I'll come on to talk about, how the management consultancies who are also entering the advertising and particularly the executional space, which hasn't been in the past. So 
you know, the beauty of that is we can customise it by picking, you know, other partners who are like-minded, often independent, where we get to deal with the owners and founders who have an incentive to, you know, they're really good at what they do and they have an incentive to do it brilliantly because at the end of the day, you know, it's their bottom line and, you know, they have to be awake at night worrying about how they're going to pay their staff and and, and, and the bank and, and so on. So um, that's a really good thing for us, collaborating and being able to customise those service models for any given client or project um, really, really works for us very well. And I think, you know, that is an advantage of being independent versus a holding company who, whether it's publicist with publicist one, WPP, as you say, consolidating their brands, of which I've spent many years. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, you know, they're sort of in inverted commas stuck with their own stable of, of brands to collaborate with, which um, isn't to say that, that they can't form, you know, very good efforts as well. But um, I think really, you know, we have that ultimate flexibility where some of the holding companies might not. Um, as far as new entrants, um, you know, the likes of Deloitte, PwC, um, Accenture, et cetera, you know, they've come in um, and built out, you know, marketing and a communications consultancy. Um, obviously, you know, they have access to boardrooms, they have access to company-wide data and adding marketing and then ultimately execution and advertising execution and production at the end of that is a gift with purchase or a value added, you know, in, in many cases a value added service that is actually fed by a much bigger, higher level, be it strategic or, you know, beyond marketing, board level change management program or, you know, buzzwordy transformation program that they're consulting on. So, um you know, and they have significant financial wherewithal to, you know, hire very good people and, um, and, and put together some, you know, very interesting customised teams as well. So um, that's increased the competitive intensity too. Um, but, you know, the beauty of our um, independence means that we can also collaborate with those consultancies on a project-by-project -project basis as well. Um, and, and that certainly is a new revenue stream, a new business opportunity that we're looking at and creating those, you know, relationships and, and alliances uh, as we speak. So staying on consultancies a bit, as you were talking about them, I mean, obviously they, yes, they've built stuff out, they've also acquired, um, you know, if you look at Accenture with, with the monkeys and yep. PwC dabbling around the edges with Thinkabell. I mean, yep. it's quite interesting that, you know, those are, those are also work fiercely independent agencies um do you think that's going to have an effect on those i mean well that's a silly question it is going to have an effect what what kind of effect do you think that will have culturally on an agency like the monkeys being sucked in to accenture well i mean you know as an external observer so far i think um cleverly you know those uh new owners have been very understanding of the importance of culture in an agency and you know in professional services particularly creative-based ones, then culture's really all you've got um, beyond a building and some computers, really. So um, if you lose that culture, then you've kind of lost the asset that you've bought. And, and, you know, externally I can't see any 
um, reason to believe that that culture at the monkeys that is so brilliantly strong has been negatively impacted by, you know, their acquisition in any way. You know, they still have an enviable list of clients and, you know, uh, the, the work that they produce is, you know, first class. So No, I, I'd agree with that. I think, I mean, having, you know, I deal directly with, with both of those agencies I've just mentioned and uh, they, they have managed to retain their culture quite well. Um, uh, and it still remains a different culture from the whole coast. Uh, yeah. And, and it, that's interesting, you know, the, the, the proliferation of independent startups. I mean, the classic is a lot of those those people, those individuals coming from Hulkos and, and deciding to set up their own their own shop. And sometimes that's sort of labelled detrimental to the, the, the holding company setup. Um, but of course, we've had the last couple of years, we, we were just offline talking about the, the great resignation. You know, do you think uh, the last couple of years has influenced even more people to to take the lead, to do something different and put a shingle above the door and, and do it themselves? And do you think that's going to continue? Well, I, I think, you know, out of necessity in many cases, you know, people have been given a catalyst for change. Um, it's been, you know, a time to sit back and review the entirety of your life and how you want it to run, and that includes uh, your career and, and the way you want to work. Uh, in, in many cases, um, it's been... a complete revelation that you can run an agency or, you know, a client relationship um, 100%, you know, remotely for so far for a period of time and we can talk about whether or not that's completely sustainable longer term in being 100% remote. Mm. Um, but that wholesale sort of reassessment of, <coughs> of people's lives is, not only can they do it, which has given them a level of confidence that maybe they should do it on their own um, and see, you know, what they can achieve on by themselves, um, living and working remotely, you know, running their own show. Uh, absolutely, I think it's given people the catalyst and um, the confidence to do that. The low cost of entry kind of worries me to a certain extent. You're absolutely right that it is a low cost of entry, but it worries me that people who really shouldn't be starting up agencies who are actually don't know anything about agencies would just hang a shingle above the door um, because we've seen that happen to other industries. Um, so I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure how uh, how that's going to go either, but I guess um, there, will, there will be a lot of people attracted from outside of this industry looking at the agent level, just set up an agency. Um, yeah. I don't know how much of a threat that is really, but um, I suspect there's, um, there's probably a few out there who, who maybe shouldn't be. Anyway. Well, I, I mean, I have, you know, there's lots of side hustles, you yeah. know, as a cliche that have been set up during the pandemic, definitely. Um, but I haven't heard too many of too many side hustle agencies because it is, at the end of the day, an all-consuming pursuit. <laughs> and that's the one thing that yeah, hasn't that, changed. The, the people who do know it, yeah, the people who do know the industry, yeah, that's true. That that's, be, the people who don't know will be stifled out by the fact yeah. that having tents it actually... Correct. That's an enduring truth that yeah, has true. not changed a single iota thanks yeah, to pandemic. That's absolutely true. All right. Well, look, that's, that was, you know, it's, it's, it's good context on a, on a really, really complicated um, landscape and, and some good context about, you know, let's get back to you guys a bit and, and where you're going. Um, I do want to talk a bit about retail in inverted commas. I, I, I struggle a bit with the term retail category, given that at the end of the day, you know, every piece of marketing and advertising comms ever written should really have the objective of selling something. But, you know, for the sake of clarity, I'm, I'm using that term to, to, to describe pure play retailers or, or the retail arms of significant or 
those nations. Um, I also don't want to pigeonhole you. I'm not, you know, it's not that Big Red is a retail only agency, I would say, but you, you do have the, the deep level of experience and category, you know, just off the top of my head, Coles, Jetstar, Virgin Australia, to, to name a few, past and present. From an agency perspective, what do you think makes strong retail communication and what do you think makes a strong um, retail client? Well, I think it's a very, uh, I also agree with you that I struggle with the term retail as in um, the kind of church and state separation of brand and retail as if they're two different things. And that's something that um, is is foreign to me having grown up on Procter & Gamble as my first foundational client and who, you know, I'm very appreciative for the MBA-like marketing training experience that that, it, that gave me. Uh, and at no point did I ever hear brand and retail, you know, separated. You know, it was a brand who, you know, you had to, you know, define a proposition that was, you know, more compelling than the competition. Um, and then that, you know, communication and that brand work had to work from the shelf out. Mm. Um, and then, you know, the creation of TV ads that dramatised the benefit, the distinctive benefit, all of those, found, and that was years ago, not too long ago, David, I'm not that old, but it was years ago. And those principles, you know, have, have since played out now in, um, you know, the, the popular, you know, references of Ehrenberg Bass and distinctive assets and mental availability and all of their principles. Um, it's also, um, you know, in their fame driving it. But it, it it's sort of, I don't know where the aberration happened that somehow there was this church and state separation. But the long and short of it, which is another sort of, you know, very popular and very good uh, reference that the industry uses, mm-hmm. um, also, by the way, it was never, it's in the how that perhaps we have a different point of view than the industry in that somehow or somewhere over time, it's been understood that to achieve brand and retail, they had to be divided into church and state. And the only way you could achieve the brand fame part tended to be with long length film, television, which we sort of don't understand being a retail strong agency, even though we do lots of brand work that happens to have television assets as part of it. But unless you have you know, those distinctive assets and absolutely unashamed, consistent application of those assets through all of the communications. So brand the retail, retail the brand Mm -hmm. and do it consistently. Even if you as the marketing or agency team get bored with it, I can pretty well assure you that, you know, no one out there um, is bored with it. In fact, by the time you get bored of it, they're probably only just starting to create the associations that you're trying to build in their mind. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I don't want to misrepresent other commentators like Ritson, but I think that's where some of the frustration comes in is the principles we all agree with. You need long-term brand assets and you need short-term traffic and sales driving activity, but they need to be in perfect sync because, you know, you do build brands through retail and product actions um, as much as you do, you know, through thematic advertising. But there's no reason, you know, most 
P&G brands and Unilever brands and all of those other, you know, generally accepted best practice marketers out there tend to build brands through product level mm. communications and propositions, yeah. not so much this top-down, long-length TV and then, well, in some cases we're not even sure if it actually lands at the shelf or in the retail environment very well. Yeah. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, yes, we handle a lot of um, retailers, unashamed, you know, consistent application of distinctive assets. Um, it's also about, you know, being willing to create and define different tactical you know, again, unashamed tactical offers, be it percentage off price or gift with purchase or buy one with get one, all of those familiar retail uh, mechanics and to use those in communications. And the beauty of, of both retail as it's always been is the cash register doesn't lie. Yes. And the beauty of it is people act on it really quickly, generally speaking. So if you put something you know, back in the day we would have said to air or live in the world, you can see the result of that within the hour, mm -hmm. you know, or at least within the first 24 hours that if you put some airfares out there, you can see whether people actually find them attractive and they're booking them or not. And then yeah. the beauty of data analytics in the, you know, these days means that you can actually get quite a forensic look at who, how, where and when and then optimise all of that. So it takes the guesswork out of it. Or, and and the, the so-called judgment, you know, which is always something that advertising professionals have held dear is their professional judgment is all important. Well, we sort of say in retail communication, let's put our professional judgment in it in the initial creation, but then let's let you know let let's put that to one side and let the data and the results speak for themselves. Yeah. And that way we know we're dealing with fact and truth, not um, opinion. Yeah. And, and that's really what we're protective of. Let's take opinion out of it and let fact, truth and commercial outcome drive what we do. I really like that analogy about church and state. I, I've worked with a number of retailers myself you know, across across the years, both here and in the UK and in other markets. And, um, Certainly that blend of integration and pragmatism you're talking about really, really rings true. Um, do you find that, and, and I, I'd also add, I think, I mean, it's even more relevant now, given that we're not just on TV, there are a thousand different channels, the proliferation of where we can communicate and how means that, that it's even more important to, to have that thematic link and, and make sure the brand is retail and retail is brand. Couldn't agree more with that. Do you find that you as the agency are having to pull your clients on that journey or are you coming to where the clients want you to be already and um, and, and they're sort of singing hallelujah because of it? So, so I'd say we have clients who are at different stages along that journey. Mm. Um, if you take Optus, for example, um, who we only do, you know, their sort of digital acquisition uh, and retention communications, we don't touch brand or, you know, sort of above-the-line advertising for product um, messaging, but we do do all of the um, retail and tactical work, which unsurprisingly is uh, mostly digitally driven. Um, they totally get it. In fact, to the point that in the lo-fi world, which is often here you would say unsexy, mm. is you can actually test and learn hundreds of different parameters 
creative, you know, is it this image or that, you know, is a copy-led answer better, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in the old days, oh, image, you know, it looks yeah. better, it looks sexy. Well, do you know what? Act, no. <laughs> the click-through rate is, you know, 50% better on the copy-only execution. Yeah. So we've, we've done that with them and, and to the point that they use that relatively low-fi, inexpensive testing and when I say inexpensive, obviously you still have to spend money to get robust, you know, representative results, statistically speaking. But they used it, for example, at one point there was uh, a campaign to uh, regional and rural Australia. They had two ambassadors in Mitchell Stark and Usain Bolt. And who do you think um, judgmentally would have been the most suitable ambassador for regional and rural Australia? Not Usain Bolt, though. Correct. Because <laughs> cricket, you know, yeah. people in the region of the world, they love cricket, backyard. backyard. Yeah, Got to be Australian. Australian. I mean, yeah. Correct. So that could have been, and, and by the way, that decision was then going to turn into a major multi-million dollar above-the-line campaign. Mm. So instead of making that judgment call, a digital campaign was run with both ambassadors in the campaign and then it was A-B tested where it was found out that unsurprisingly to some or quite surprisingly to everyone, Usain Bolt as not just an Australian icon but a global icon well respected, you know, for his athletic abilities was the more desirable ambassador. The data made in that instance the decision and then Usain Bolt appeared in the above the line. Now, that saved, you know, first of all, signing up huge amounts of ambassador fees for Mitchell Star. And it also avoided shooting on a very expensive production the wrong ambassador yes. who would have had a less, you know, less of an impact. So right there is a great financial saving based on being enlightened about how you use your activity that was put live into the world so it was still... Mm-hmm advertising, you know, that particular proposition in the market. But it was those results that informed the much more expensive, where the traditional way was, you know, on judgment, choose the ambassador, create the above line <coughs> campaign, plummet down into all of the digital, you know, with key visuals here and there and yeah. and job done. Well, yeah. no, you know, it was better to do it the other way. So they've, you know, Optus are very enlightened on on how to, how to do it and very advanced and, um, you know, we've got many other clients who are coming on that journey and, um, and and find it particularly attractive. See, it's interesting, isn't it? The way you're describing, in inverted commas, retail finance, you know, we both express that that's a bit of a difficult term, but um, one of the reasons, the other reasons that I'm using it is that um, I think retail has a stigma attached to it. I think the kind of clients we're talking about here has a stigma attached to it. I, I don't think... You know, they're often perceived as agency by, by agency people, particularly younger agency people, is not, you know, again, inverted commas, not the sexiest um, and hard to work with. Um, but I want to do a bit of, of myth busting here, you know, to debunk that a bit because I, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed working with retailers. I really like their pragmatism. I really like the speed. Um, I really liked a lot of what you've just been saying about the way things have evolved and the work that you're, you're doing with them. Um, and obviously, you've got a lot of people in your agency who clearly, you know, they wouldn't be here if they didn't, didn't make a tick. Um, so what is it 
in your experience about retail marketing that, that makes agency people get out of bed in the morning and, and you know, what do you think retail clients really are like to work with in comparison with some other sectors or categories? Well, I think, you know, as you pointed out at the, at the top of the conversation, you know, retail partly is to do with how you want to define it, but uh, ultimately everyone needs to drive a commercial outcome. Um, and so interestingly, you know, we've just done the Million Dollar Vax campaign, which didn't I necessarily signed. have a commercial sales I objective, I, but you signed that, up. Did I win? We got a sale. <laughs> you, you didn't win. Oh. I'm amazed that you didn't know that because the, the PR earned media effort has been phenomenal. Um, it was a facetious claim. I know I haven't won. <laughs> I was just hoping for a bit of favour from the person who organised the campaign. Anyway, yes. Um, uh, so, uh, look, I, I think historically, you know, retail has been considered unsexy because it's the unashamed um application of templatized, you know, offer-based material, Um, you know, whether it's the Harvey Normans or the JB Hi-Fi's, and therefore, you know, there's a degree of sort of creative snobbery that, you know, that's not considered a clever idea, even though I think everyone um, would agree that it's highly commercially effective. Um, Having said that, you know, there's no reason why retailers can't be can't come with very sexy creative. And I'll quote other people's work, you know, in KFC, which I just think is one of the most outstanding from brand top to bottom, left to right. You know, it's so well joined up. The level of insight is fabulous. The level of creative execution and dramatization, the the retail platform of shut up and take my money, insert any offer, whether it's, you know, $2 large chips or a freezing or anything. It can carry anything, but it's consistent, it's engaging Mm -hmm. and it's enduring and it can go on for a very long time. Um, Similarly, you know, Aldi. Yeah. You know, and unsurprisingly, those two examples top the Effie's list. Of course. Right, so... That's, you know, we're not particularly great believers in pure creative awards because we think it distracts us from focusing on our clients' business. But if there was an award, you know, that we would or, or that we take, you know, interest in, it's definitely the effort. Yeah. Um, and therefore I don't, I don't find it surprising whatsoever that those two brands, you know, who are pure retailers come at the top of those effies lists. And, yeah. and so therefore I think people do have an incorrect perception that retail has to be boring and, um, and and repetitive, not at all. But I think what our people get most out of it is what I said before is, you know, there's so much variety in dealing with a Coles because not only do you have to understand how a supermarket works and all of the categories from fresh to grocery, you also have to, to a certain degree, understand what, Unilever is what's their strategy and how are they selling you know the shampoo category versus PNG so if you if you've got a curiosity in understanding how a supermarket works and you know these are huge businesses that impact your daily life I mean I don't know how often you know you go to the supermarket obviously people order a lot more uh, through e-commerce having seen both Woolies and Coles as e-commerce you know growth of more than 50 percent year on year pretty phenomenal but 
you know, these are huge businesses that you participate in very regularly. And I think our people really get a buzz out of, you know, working on something that impacts their daily lives and they can see the result of what they do, you know, as I said, by the hour, you know, day in, day out. Um, and that's a nice segue because uh, regular touch points with, with a business, but of course in very irregular time over the past couple of years, you know, um, let's talk a bit about COVID um, because I'm really interested in, in, in COVID in relation to your client base, actually. You know, you, I guess that you've just mentioned Coles, and I guess that your clients and, and therefore your agency have experienced a, a really mixed bag. I mean, if I think about the airline industry, um, being on its knees to stop flying off the supermarket shelves. I mean, it's, it's a, really a tale of uh, two cities. Um, what's been your experience internally and working with your clients through this through this time? Well, it's funny. I mean, it, as a you know, as a pandemic that you know really brings into focus you know life and death. Um, it kind of was a perverse time for our business because. Um, as you say, you know, it's no secret that, you know, supermarket and grocery, you know, their businesses have boomed as a result of the pandemic. Um, similarly, you know, we're very fortunate to have BHP uh, as, as a client who, you know, as one of Australia's biggest businesses, you know, saw it as their responsibility to create a vital resources fund of $50 million to support the communities that have supported them. Yeah. So... You know, we had to create campaigns, you know, to communicate in that fund and, and support those communities. So we were sort of busier than ever, um, uh, which we're obviously, you know, very uh, happy to do and, and, and grateful for. Um, and it was very rewarding to be able to participate in, you know, supporting. Similarly, you know, we handled the Go Local First campaign, which is a federal government funded um, campaign via uh, COSBOA, uh, which is the Council of Small Business Organisations of Australia. Um, and that was very much to drive behaviour change and encourage people to shop local mm-hmm. um, and to support the 3 million plus small businesses who, you know, really are the fabric of local communities. Um, these are the businesses, butchers and bakers who sponsor the local footy clubs and who, you know, have small businesses without endless, you know, um, either government subsidies or uh, any other, you know, these are people, families whose houses are on the line. Uh, they're like, you know, they're, they're, um, they need all the help. So we created that campaign, again, which wouldn't have existed without the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but it's been very rewarding to see uh, the very, very successful results of that. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the Million Dollar Vax, which is right at the end yeah. now, yeah. Um, you know, encouraging people to um, get the vaccination faster than they might otherwise have so that we can all get back to normality faster. So that's from a client point of view. Mm-hmm. From a um, staff point of view, you know, like everyone, it was survival in year one. Um, and it's quickly, pendulums quickly swung the other way to um, how do we make sure we get back to a vibrant um, culture? Like we said at the beginning of the call, agencies aren't much more than their culture. Uh, how do we get back to defining, you know, a hybrid working model? I think, you know, we're all in agreement that hybrid is the way, but we also, 
as a service-based industry where it is about people collaborating with one another, absolutely we want to get people back in the office. Mm. That doesn't mean it's full-time and it doesn't mean just doing their work day in, day out, um, but it does mean getting people together um, and incentivizing them to want to come to the office so therefore the onus is back on us you know to create a destination that's really desirable on one two three five days a week whatever you know people want to do in many cases um, balance with sometimes we're going to need people you know in the office be it new business pitches or other intense you know creative concepting which I think will still absolutely benefit from um, in-person collaboration. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's been a very rapid swing um, and getting staff re-engaged with our business by being back in the office is something that we need to, and only yesterday um, uh, we're working on to define what that looks like. Mm. But you're, I mean, your people, uh, and I would guess... And I, no, I don't run an agency, so you, you tell me, but, you know, it's a relatively young uh, average age of an agency. Um, I would guess that a, a fair proportion are going to want the social interaction as opposed to, and, and, the, and the face-to-face, as opposed to sort of staying in their bedroom stroke study. Um, what's the, what's well, without being too sort of sensitive about it, what, what's the general feeling and sentiment of your, of your people? So, so to make sure that we weren't just making it up and trying to guess, um, even though we were very conscious throughout the whole period to have regular check-ins and at, at one point in peak pandemic, particularly our, for our Victorian-based team members, we were having two check-ins a day, one at the beginning of the day, which was a more formal what's the work that needs to be done, and then a five o'clock casual check-in, how was everyone's day, any urgent work things addressed at that moment, but otherwise it was what rubbish TV are we going to watch tonight or who's got the best Netflix recommendation. Um, but you're right to say that we wanted to make sure it was fact-based. So we did staff surveys. We wanted to understand anonymous-based surveys, yeah. but unsurprisingly it was younger people who might live in shared, you know, accommodation who don't have a particularly comfortable, you know, literally desk and place to work mm. or quiet place to work, um, who struggled a lot, as well as, uh, unsurprisingly, those with young kids. Yes. And I was definitely one of those. So, well, aren't we? But, um, you know, obviously closing of child care. The other thing um, is that, you know, we're very, uh, we have been a great supporter, I'd like to think, as well as um, we have benefited greatly by being um a partner with RMIT and their pitch night. Um, yeah. I think they have a fantastic course. Uh, we've been very fortunate to hire some young graduates over the past four consecutive years and we're just in the process of hiring, um, I'd like to say numerous, but more than one yes. grad out of this more year's class. Thousand, yeah. um, and certainly there, you know, there's an appetite amongst, um, you know, university students who have been, you know, it should be a, you know, a wonderful, vibrant social life as much as an academic one. And they've obviously struggled through that. So in talking to them, they can't wait to start their office life. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, to be that young. And you've got, I mean, it's a lovely space here. You're in a great spot. In, in, in well, we're moving. You're moving? Yes, no, we are moving. moving. Uh, we're moving back to 
um, a property that we were in previously um, that happens to be um, part of our uh, our fan, founder's um, uh, portfolio. And it's a fabulous space in St Edmunds. I'm going to get it wrong. St Edmunds Terrace Place Street like in Paran, um, just near Greville I Street. I remember going, I mean, this is before your time, but, but I used to work with Big Red many, many years ago when I was on the media exercise, so I've been in that building. Yeah, yeah I remember that. Yeah, it's a fantastic building. In fact, I remember going in and having Ted lecture me about why well, I shouldn't be doing outdoor advertising in that too. <laughs> no, that, that sounds about right. That sounds about right. But because, you know, it's ours, it's part of our agency's history, it's part of our culture, it's part of our mythology, yeah, we can't nice. wait to get back there because yeah. it feels like it has, you know, both metaphorical and genuinely real roots. Um, yeah. You know, it has a beautiful kitchen. So, you know, that, you know, has, has thrown up considerations for, you know, it's part of incentivising people to come back to the office. Do we, you know put on meals or, you know, subsidise meals and healthy options and help people out both, um, you know, out of convenience financially with subsidised food, you know, all of those things were up for grabs. So we're reconsidering all of those um, as part of, you know, at the onus being on us to encourage them back into uh, the office and, and that's a great palette to start with that that yes, that nice space so yes this is very nice but that one's much much well, better it's got more heart for sure. correct yeah. correct so um, oh well other than the office move what's what are your plans i mean what's where's big red headed how are you um positioning yourself for more more success i mean you've been incredibly successful over the past uh, the number of years that you've been in business and um, how are you positioning yourself for even more of that and more growth into the future well, one of my favourite business books um, was uh, a book written by Andy Groves, who was the CEO of Intel, and the title of his book was Only the Paranoid Survive. And so part of it is, you know, not paralysing paranoia, yeah. that doesn't help anyone, but um, paranoia insofar as because we've been successful, how do we remain so and not, you know, succumb to complacency and and being someone who worked on Nokia for six years who <sighs> at the end of the day had the answers to everything that Apple ever created yes. well before Apple did but were too protective of what they had um, and then only realised that when it was way too late. Um, that further <laughs> drove my paranoia around yes, the need for constant change or at least, you know, having um, uh, making sure that, you know, you're comfortable in continuing on the way you've been in some parts of the business while you try to grow others. And I, you know, I have to be um, acknowledge uh, the fact that, you know, we did engage Trinity B3 and you, David, to do an objective assessment of our business. Um, and uh, we're very appreciative of uh, the objective uh, report, uh, the forensic analysis, um, the home truths that were very uncomfortable to hear, but very, very important that Unless we had have done that objectively, um, we would never have heard and never have been in a position to address, which we are now. Um, and I think, you know, uh, as I said to you um, before we started, we had a management meeting yesterday where, you know, many of those uncomfortable home truths were tabled. And as much as we didn't like, you know, to discuss them, we had to. And the best thing about it now is that we have a plan to address some of those things or all of those things um, that we might not have otherwise have got to, you know, if we didn't go through that.
process with with you and and, and Trinity P3. So um, thank you. Um, you've helped manage my paranoia in a healthy and, and sustainable <laughs> way. Um, but, uh, you know, part of that is, you know, understanding what our positioning is, what, what product, you know, do we want to have? You know, yes, we have a, a strong retail DNA, but that doesn't mean, you know, that we don't want to do, um, you know, enter new categories. You know, we're underrepresented in, in FMCG brands, which we'd like to play in. You know, that means, you know, entertaining different types of creative ideas and, 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 and that's all now, you know, up for consideration, yeah. um, which is, you know, part of our diversification of our offering. Um, we've always been a bit camera and or publicity shy because yeah. we, as, a, as we always say, we prefer to spend our time focused on our clients' business, not talking about ourselves. However, um, you know, at some point in time, we, we do need to share what we believe in because we'd like to share that with more willing and able um, client partners um, yes. and like to think that we can help them grow their businesses as well. Well, that sounds great. Thank you for the shout out. I promise everyone it wasn't in the script, but the completely <laughs> unplanned uh, uh, acknowledgement there. So I, I appreciate that. I guess my final question, in view of what you just said about uncomfortable comments, is that if I turn up in Paran at some point, um, is Ted going to throw a book at me or is he, is he going to open me with, welcome me with open arms? Well, after that meeting yesterday, that is one of the most pertinent questions. <laughs> <laughs> I should add that I've got... A huge amount of respect for Ted. I've been a bit flippant about him there, but um, yeah, I can imagine him, based on my limited interactions with him in the past, I can imagine him doing uh, probably probably the throwing action rather than the open arms. Well, but, uh, in any case, whatever it is, you do want to be careful because I know one thing for sure, if and when there is a book, it'll be hardcover. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. I think um, my personal injury is a good place to, to leave this. So, um, Listen, um, thanks so much. That's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed talking to you. And um, all the best with those big plans for the future. Thank you.